0: Trump called him tough. Rush Limbaugh read one of his articles live on his radio show. Ann Coulter tweeted that article to her one and a half million followers and declared every sentence is perfect.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, your host, former chief editor of the Jewish Press, Elliot Resnick. Welcome to the Elliot Resnick Show. With us today is Gordon Chang, author of The Coming Collapse of China, senior fellow at the Gatestone Institute and one of America's most respected experts on China. Gordon, welcome to the program.
0: Thank you so much, Elliot.
1: Thank you for joining us today. For the past few years, people like Tucker Carlson have been warning the American public that China will soon overtake the US as the world's largest economy, and not long after that, as the world's greatest superpower. If it does, our national pride will, of course, suffer. But other than that, why is this development bad? America wasn't the world's greatest power before World War II. For most of our history, England was stronger than we were. France was stronger than we were. Countries like Russia were probably stronger than we were. And America managed just fine. In fact, we flourished. So why is it bad if a country like China surpasses us as the world's greatest superpower and we return to the world position we occupied in the 19th century?
0: For one thing, China believes that it is the only legitimate state, and we do not want to be a colony of China. Also, you know, the Chinese are saying that the moon and Mars should be considered sovereign Chinese territory. So these are the most aggressive and ambitious folks in history. But the other thing, of course, is that China's committing genocide and other crimes against humanity. That's against the Uyghurs, the Kazakhs, and the other Turkic minorities, It has spread COVID-19, that's killed about 7 million people outside of China, Um, and China did that deliberately because it lied about contagiousness in December 2019 and January 2020, and at the same time that it was locking down its own country, it was pressuring other countries to take arrivals from China without travel restrictions or quarantines. You put those two things together, and it's clear that the spread of COVID was deliberate.
1: Wouldn't it have spread anyways eventually? I mean, it was a very highly contagious disease, no matter what we would have done in the beginning, no?
0: I think that it would not have spread to that extent. We've got to remember that in all probability, this was an outbreak from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So they knew what was going on from the get-go. This was a disease that they could have contained to Wuhan if they had taken responsible measures. They decided not to. So it then spread inside of China. And then they decided to spread the misery beyond China's borders. So they took steps that they knew would result in the deaths of people outside of China. And as a result, 7 million people perished. We would call that murder, by the way. We know that China is deliberately behind the fentanyl gangs, and that's about 60 to 70,000 Americans dying each year from doses of illegal Chinese fentanyl. Because China runs a near total surveillance state, we know that those gangs could not operate without the Communist Party approval. And indeed, Beijing's diplomats give support to the gangs, and the gangs launder their proceeds through the Chinese state banking system. So that's additional murders. Now, do you want that regime to be powerful or more powerful than it is today? I don't think
1: we need more genocide. We don't need more crimes against humanity. Two points. One is a minor point just for my audience. The word genocide is thrown around sometimes because I'm a Jew and most of my audience is Jewish also. We often think of genocide in terms of the Holocaust. But the legal definition of genocide is actually a little bit lower. Genocide doesn't just necessarily mean exterminating a people. It could also mean exterminating part of a people or trying to reduce the birth rate of the people.
0: Yeah. Genocide is defined in the Genocide Convention of 1948. And of course, it uh, means extermination of a people. But it also means the elimination of ethnic identity. And what China is doing in Xinjiang is um, there are people who are dying in those camps, which meet the definition of concentration camps. We know they're being tortured. Rape is official policy. Forced abortion, sterilization, imprisonment of children, forced enslaved labor those are crimes against humanity, and some of them, as especially as they 're put together, uh, constitutes genocide
1: I want to get back to the larger point about the possible future of China in relation to the world because we 're not just talking about China becoming a more powerful country than the u s and then China doing its own thing you know in the eastern hemisphere. I think you believe, and other people believe that there 's actual danger that China will not mind its own business, it will use its power in a harmful manner towards the U.S. Is that true?
0: Yeah, Xi Jinping has been pushing this notion that Chinese rulers have the mandate of heaven to rule what they call Tianxia, or all under heaven. And they also believe that they not only have the right to rule all under heaven, but that heaven actually compels them to do so. This is clear from the themes that Xi Jinping uses in his speeches. But it's also crystal clear from the statements and writings of his officials. So we know that they believe that everybody else should show not only subservience, but also that they should realize that they're no longer sovereign. So that's the Chinese view of this. And since 2017, Chinese officials have been talking about the moon and Mars as sovereign Chinese territory. So you add that up all together, and it means that China wants to enslave the world. It's as simple as that.
1: Could you give perhaps one or two practical examples? Suppose 50 years from now, supposing we don't get smarter and China does overtake the U.S. as the greatest power on the globe. Give us an example, one or two examples how America would suffer, let's say, 50 years from now in this new world.
0: The China's defense minister is reported to have said in the first couple of years of this century that China should use disease to exterminate the American population. As an alternative, he said, maybe they leave a few Americans to serve as slaves of China. But we're talking about the destruction of our country.
1: So to that extent, we're not just talking about a little bit of economic you know, pressure or twisting of hands. We're talking much more than, than that.
0: Correct. And, and you know, we've, we've heard officials and, and others in China, especially during the coronavirus epidemic, talking about uh, China using disease to exterminate populations, especially the United States. We know from the writings of Chinese military technicians that they're working on what they call specific ethnic genetic attacks. In other words, pathogens that will leave the Chinese immune but kill everybody else. So we've been put on notice that China intends to kill large portions of the world.
1: Okay, I've read I'm not sure if this is is true. I've read that mercy and compassion are not valued in Chinese culture as they are in Western culture. Is that true? And I ask this question because I think it's directly related to how concerned we should be with China's rise and the prospect of nuclear war, because at this point, we in the West find the prospect of tens of millions of people dying in a war horrifying. So I think Western countries like America and even Russia are extremely reluctant to launch a nuclear war. I'm not sure the same is true about China. What are your thoughts?
0: Well, in Chinese culture, yes, that compassion is benevolence. These are things that one can trace back all the way to Confucius. And even before that, they're not valued in Chinese communist culture, though. And we have heard Chinese officials, generals, talk about incinerating American cities, incinerating Australia, Japan. These are unprovoked, these threats And so although China says it has a no-first-use policy with its nuclear weapons, clearly they do intend to use their nukes. We tend to think of nuclear weapons as instruments of deterrence, to deter somebody from attacking the United States. China tends to view them the way Vladimir Putin does, and that is to obtain obedience from others, to get others not to defend Taiwan or Japan, for instance. So they threaten to use these weapons offensively. So we can't assume that they view the use of nuclear weapons the same as we do. We know from what they say they don't.
1: Okay, interesting. And again, my information might be incorrect. I heard this from somebody who I respect, but he might be incorrect. He was telling me that if you see like a poor person on the street in in America – or most of the West is considered proper, someone's poor, he needs money, you give him a little money, that in China they view that a little bit differently. Is that correct or not at all correct?
0: Well, in communist China, there is really very little compassion, especially on of officials. This is a regime which has killed tens of millions of Chinese. We don't know exactly how many, Elliot. You know, the lower estimate is 30 million, upper estimate 70, 75 million. That makes this a bloodthirsty regime. So we're just dealing with a malicious ruling group. And we Americans have been oblivious to this. You know, we didn't pay any attention to Islamic terrorists, even after 1993, where they bombed uh, the North Tower, the World Trade Center, killed six people. And we didn't pay attention until one day when Osama bin Laden killed 2,977 Americans. China is much more powerful than al-Qaeda ever was. And so we have a political class right now that refuses to listen to what China's regime actually says about us. They declared a people's war on America in May 2019. That was People's Daily, the most authoritative publication in China. When People's Daily speak, that's China speaking. Yet we have um, a president right now who won't even call China an adversary. So we could lose our country, even though we're so much stronger than China, because we're not paying attention to what the Chinese, in fact, are saying and doing.
1: I've also heard or read, and again, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, that China has sort of like, I guess you would say, a racist view towards the rest of the world, that they're kind of like a superior people, and therefore maybe different laws of ethics might apply to other people versus to them.
0: Yeah, that's right. They have hand nationalism, and it's a deeply racist view of the world. This is not uniquely communist, but it has formed the core of Chinese Communist Party ideology. And so we have to be concerned about the way they, in fact, view us. And we can see what they're doing in Tibet. We can see what they're doing in what they call Xinjiang. These are policies intended to eliminate a racial and minority group. And in fact, they're using murder and torture to do so.
1: I think many Americans, including me, have romantic notions of Chinese culture. So you've already helped disabuse us of some of those notions, but I want to give a few more examples to really do it more. So could you discuss a little bit how China handled COVID outbreaks in its midst? Because a year ago, I spoke to a rabbi who lives in China, and he told me, he was in America at the time, that a COVID lockdown in China means something very different than a COVID lockdown in America. Can you elaborate?
0: Well, on November 24th of last year, there was a fire in Urumqi, which is the capital of the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. And we know that people died in their apartments because they were sealed shut from the outside as a COVID quarantine measure. So we know the extreme lengths to which COVID authorities went. They had what's called a dynamic zero COVID policy, which was to prevent any transmission of the disease at all. And they went to great lengths to do that. And uh, they dropped the policy in December of last year. But while that policy was in effect, they went to measures which would be very hard for us to to think about how they did it. You know, not only daily testing, but twice a day testing, extreme isolation, all the rest of this, which basically uh, strangled Chinese society for while that policy was in effect.
1: I think this rabbi was telling me that not only we, I mean, in America, lockdown means you sort of stay inside for most of the day, but you can walk around and go to the store. I think he was telling me you lockdown means literally you're locked in your apartment. You can't leave to buy food. Food is delivered to you by the government once or twice a day. I don't remember. Or not at all. Oh, is that the case? <laughs> yeah. I mean,
0: people went a little bit hungry. I don't think anyone starved to death, though. There are a few reports of that. But They lock people in their homes without thinking about how to deliver food and other essential services.
1: Okay, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about China's one-child policy from 1980 to 2016. If you were a woman during those years and you got pregnant with a second child, what would happen to you?
0: Well, the best that would happen would be that child couldn't go to school or couldn't get any permits or whatever. But oftentimes, you were forcibly... Aborted, um, you were sterilized. If your infant was born, it was killed at birth. You know, this is just the most coercive policy in existence. You know, they went to a two child policy at the beginning of 2016, and now they're at a three child policy. But they still have these birth rules, and so it still is a coercive system.
1: What's the most common reaction, though? I mean, if you manage to hide your pregnancy and give birth to the child, will that child live more often than not, or more often than not, they'll? To actually kill the child?
0: I mean, it depended locality to
1: locality.
0: And in the countryside, there were families with six, seven children. Officials either just didn't pay attention or looked the other way. But, you know, in, in the cities, your child couldn't go to school. It couldn't get social services. It was a non-person. If that child wasn't actually killed at birth.
1: Interesting. Let's say you didn't manage to hide your pregnancy. If they noticed you were pregnant, would they forcefully abort the child?
0: Yeah, they forcibly aborted children, and they sterilized mothers against their will. I mean, this is a coercive totalitarian system. That's no big deal.
1: I hate to be so detailed, but I just want to know the more common policy. If I live in Beijing or Shanghai, which I guess are the biggest cities in China, what was the standard policy? The Standard policy was you were forced to have an abortion? or Yeah,
0: and if the child was born, they just became a non-person. But in you know, many localities, they actually killed the children that were born. Um, this was murder. You know, China's a big country. The rules were administered differently in different localities. But we got to remember the policy sanctioned murder.
1: Right. I, I mean, it's a little bit... I was going to make a comparison. Obviously, there's many differences with Jews in the Soviet Union. Yes, you weren't really allowed to practice your religion. But depending where you were in the country, you might be able to get away with it if you were in a tiny you know, countryside somewhere. I knew
0: a, a very wealthy and prominent entrepreneur in Shanghai. And he was outspoken. He criticized the regime all the time, talked about democracy. He had no problem with that. There was only one thing that he was sensitive about and which I couldn't write about. And that is he had a second child. That shows you how coercive the system was. You could complain about the political system, but you couldn't talk about your second child.
1: Interesting. What's your take on the Chinese spy balloon that recently flew over the U.S.? To me, it seemed like a blatant and arrogant act of disrespect. Is that the way you interpreted it?
0: Yeah, it's an act of utter disrespect. And it's a warning sign that China feels it empowered uh, and emboldened to do whatever it wants. Now, I'm not saying that Xi Jinping's assessment of the U.S. is correct, but he believes we're no longer a factor in global affairs, he's extremely bold. And that's going to lead him to do things that will alter the course of history. This is a very dangerous situation. And we have a president right now who believes the way to avoid war is to be meek. Well, that didn't work in the 1930s. And it's probably not going to work now.
1: I want to ask you another one or two questions on this topic. But let me ask you about the prospects of war and what we could do about it i mean china has more people than we do um and they're a very industrious country they're steel-willed and we're not unfortunately so I mean, what what do we do really practically speaking
0: well first of all we're being overwhelmed by china in our own society so we've got to re- because china uses every point of contact to try to undermine us and to destroy america so we have to remove those contacts which means as a practical matter closing their four consulates here. There are police stations, there are unofficial police stations, of which there are probably six, some people say seven. We cut down the embassy staff in Washington just down to the ambassador. We, um, first of all, started plying our laws against money laundering against the Chinese state banks, which have been laundering funds for all sorts of bad actors. So we put them out of business. We threw out their state enterprises, We do not allow investment into China. We do not allow China to invest in our country. We cut trade to the greatest extent possible. China's conducting economic warfare against us. We need to start defending ourselves. And then we need to send deterrence messages to China saying that if you attack Japan, Philippines, Taiwan, we will defend those places and we will impose unacceptable costs on the Chinese regime and China itself. I know that that sounds drastic, but on the other hand, we've got policies that sound good to the ear, but have produced this disastrous situation. And so we've got to change course. And we are so far gone that every course going forward is extremely risky. So to tell me, oh, you can't do that because that's risky and dangerous. That's not a meaningful objection anymore because everything is risky and dangerous And the most risky and dangerous path forward is to continue those policies that have created this situation in the first place.
1: In retrospect, the reason why appeasement of Hitler was wrong is because we now know that Hitler had no plans on stopping at Czechoslovakia. No one wants to go to war. No one wants to lose millions of people. But are you arguing we should go to war to defend Taiwan for the same reason that we should have got to war to defend Czechoslovakia because China will not stop there? It's very clear they'll go past that.
0: Yeah, of course. China's not going to stop. I mean, they're now talking about Okinawa and the Ryukyu chain as part of China. And then, of course, the Senkaku Islands as part of China and Vladivostok as part of China. This is just a regime that won't stop. Unfortunately, aggressors get more hungry as they have success. And we've emboldened China for instance, in 2012, we did not protect the Philippines against China's seizure of Scarborough Shoal. Well, you know, President Obama thought, well, we don't want to aggravate China. But what we did was we convinced the worst elements in China they could get away with what they want. And we legitimized them because we showed everybody else in Beijing that aggression worked. So right after that, China started to pressure second Thomas Shoal, also in the South China Sea, also part of the Philippines. They then started to reclaim those features in the Spratlys, the artificial islands, and they started pressuring the Senkaku Islands in the East China Sea. So China just went out and made the problem bigger. So we don't have to speculate about the way this regime thinks. It looks at weakness as a fighting target. And, you know, if we needed any more validation of that view, just look what happened when Biden... You know, wasn't willing to defend Ukraine. He wasn't willing to say we will protect it. He said, Oh, a minor incursion might be okay. And look what happened. So, you know, war right now, Elliot, is spreading. It is not only in Eastern Europe. We've allowed the China and Russia to destabilize Sudan, and that's an insurgency that looks like a war that's spreading to the southeastern part of Libya. Um, There are suggestions that China and Russia are going to arm Algeria to go after our friend Morocco. This is really a world that is in the balance. We're at a point where things can go either way. And one of the probable options is war. As Henry Kissinger said on June 7th to Bloomberg, war between the U.S. and China is probable. And I don't agree with Kissinger almost all the time, but this time for once he's right. We have to expect that war is coming because we know that China is mobilizing all of Chinese society for war. And so this is extremely dangerous because we have Biden who thinks that we're a country of peace. No, we're not. I mean, we have China mobilizing
1: everybody in China for war. I interpret the Russia situation differently because I don't see anything in Russia's past in the last thousand years that indicates that it wants anything more at best anything more or at worst anything more than eastern europe which is not made good for the world but it's not bad for america per se america is not threatened if russia controls all of eastern europe but it seems like china doesn't just want domination in its area it seems like it wants domination across the globe
0: it wants to rule the world not domination It wants to rule the world And Eastern Europe includes, by the way, NATO allies. And if we allowed Russia to go after the Baltics, for instance, or Poland, then who is going to believe the United States' word? This is bad enough. We had a Budapest memorandum obligation to defend Ukraine. That's a little bit of a complicated, it's a bit nerdy. But the point is, we had an obligation and we showed Ukraine that we were not as good as our word. And so basically, what we said to the world was look, Ukraine gave up nuclear weapons based upon our word to protect it. And so, what we've said to the rest of the world is the best way to protect yourself is to develop the world's most destructive weapons. This is not a world we want to live in, Elliot, but this is a world that is the result of atrocious American policy. We're not aggressors, but we have opened the door to aggression around the world. And we are going to see a world which is unimaginable to us.
1: Some of your critics say, because you wrote you know, a book called The Coming Collapse of China, and they say, well, where's the collapse? And even in our conversation, you're seeming to say that China's getting stronger and stronger and more and more dangerous. So- uh, no,
0: no, I'm saying China's getting more dangerous. It's not getting stronger.
1: Okay, so if you could elaborate, so you really think it might actually collapse from within? Well, we're seeing right now that an economy
0: which is, you know, it's contracted at the beginning of this year. If it's growing now, it's maybe only 1% or 2%. It's not growing nearly fast enough to pay off the debt. The debt overhang in China is uh, critical. There are debt defaults of large companies, plunging property prices, worsening food shortages, uh, deteriorating environment, failing local governments, they haven't gotten past COVID-19, and they sit on the edge of the steepest demographic decline in history in the absence of war or disease. I think Xi Jinping is seeing a closing window of opportunity, that he believes that China should rule the world, but he sees that if he doesn't move first, um, he's going to lose the ability to do so because of these problems and trends. So yeah, I think that this is a point where China's weakness is going to mean that Xi Jinping can take us by surprise.
1: Interesting. So you think it actually might collapse from within? And and if it does, what would occur in its wake?
0: I don't know. I mean, China could break apart. China could stay together. I mean, it could be in a period of disorganization and chaos, like it was for much of the 20th century, and the first part of the 20th century. There are any number of outcomes. But one of them is that Xi Jinping decides not to let history take its course and he decides to move to rally the Chinese people. Remember, he inherited a consensual political system where no Chinese leader got too much credit or too much blame because decisions were shared across the factions at the top of the Communist Party. By grabbing power, he also meant that he has no one else to blame these days. And at the same time, he increased the cost of losing a political struggle. So he's being blamed and correctly for the policies that have aggravated the situation in China. So he's a guy with, I think, a very low threshold of risk and much lower than we think that he has, which means that he can take us by surprise by doing something that, from our perspective, makes no sense. So yeah, we've got to be really concerned because we have leaders, both civilian and military, who do not have the requisite sense of urgency
1: what would you say the chances are of China imploding from within before China does something very dangerous? Is it like 5-10% or is it like fifty, sixty 60 percent
0: You know, if Xi Jinping didn't start a war, then China imploding is really high. I mean, you're talking 80-90%. a matter of fact, it's, it's almost inevitable given the debt that they have. And Their ideology of throwing out the foreigners, of prejudicing domestic Chinese private entrepreneurs, you know, a state-dominated economy, moving back to full totalitarianism. You know, we saw Maoist policies did not work at the beginning of the People's Republic. They're certainly not going to work now in a more modern world. So you're talking China failing. But the question that um, we have to ask is, is Xi Jinping going to wait for that to happen, or will he move against us? or move against, you know, some neighbor.
1: Right. A couple of last questions. A year or two ago, I came across clips of prominent Chinese officials and spokesmen harshly criticizing, even lecturing to the U.S., as if the U.S. were like a naughty child. I found this very surprising, since countries generally refrain from this type of behavior, knowing as they do how powerful the U.S. is. Have Chinese officials always criticized the U.S. in this fashion, and I just missed it? Or is this a relatively new development?
0: Well, they've criticized this. For a very long time, but um, and I'm not a Republican or a Democrat, but since Biden has become president, the, China's message is now different. It's not only criticism, it's also that you no longer are in a position to stop us. And this was evident in March of 2021, when China sent its top two diplomats, Zhang Jiashir and Wang Yi, to Anchorage to meet Secretary of State Blinken and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan where in his opening rant, Young said the United States is no longer in a position to speak to China from a position of strength. But we've heard those messages with great frequency more recently. So, you know, I think that the catastrophic withdrawal from Afghanistan convinced Xi Jinping that he could do whatever he wanted. By the way, while we're talking about that, March 22nd, when Xi was saying goodbye to Vladimir Putin in Moscow after their 40th in-person chat, Xi Jinping said, "Quote: Change is coming that hasn't happened in a hundred years, and you and I are driving this change together." That's basically saying that the U.S. is no longer uh, has the ability to stand in the way of China and Russia. So, yeah, Xi Jinping has made it very clear what he thinks. And by the way, he flew that. By balloon over our nuclear weapons sites. And that showed, just as I mentioned, utter disrespect for the United States. This is a very dangerous time.
1: Do you think there's anyone, Oh, there's probably someone, but do you think there's more than one or two people in the U.S. government who really appreciate the nature of the threat of China?
0: Yeah, they probably are, but they're not driving policy.
1: Okay. I guess then the last question, can you talk a little bit for those people who are not so aware of China's social credit system?
0: Yeah, China's had a number of local experiments of social credit system. And basically what happens is everyone within a, you know, a city or a town has been given a score. And that score is constantly adjusted based upon observable behaviors. So if a surveillance camera catches you jaywalking, your score goes down. If you say something on social media that is favorable to Xi Jinping, your score will go up. Well, what China is trying to do is to knit those individual social credit systems into one nationwide system. And China has the technology to do it. It's got now an estimated 700 million surveillance cameras. In other words, one surveillance camera for every two individuals. And of course, it uses the 1.69 billion cell phones to keep track of people. And then they do it other ways. So they're trying to put this system together into a nationwide one. And eventually, they'll succeed given their resources, because this is one of their high priorities.
1: And then practically what happens if if you have a low score, you don't get a good job? I mean, how does it play out exactly?
0: You don't get a good job. You can't buy a bus ticket. You can't send your kid to school. Chinese officials have openly said, you know, that we would not allow the bad actors to leave their homes. So essentially they've made it clear how they intend to do this.
1: Okay. I said that was the last question, but if you could very quickly, I'm sorry, because I you know what, I, I shouldn't break my word, so I won't ask any more questions. Um, thank you so no, you very can, much. You can ask a question, I don't mind. Okay, fine. Um this, your thoughts quickly on you know, two weeks ago there were reports. The United States confirmed that China has been operating a spy base in Cuba since two thousand and nineteen Should we be alarmed? Why is that spy base there?
0: Well, first of all, if I have a few moments, let me go through some of the chronology on this okay. where you had the Wall Street Journal reporting that China was going to establish a spy base, in other words, to capture signals intelligence, and they were going to that location would be in Cuba. Then you had John Kirby, the National Security Council spokesperson, say, well, that report was inaccurate. Well, in a sense, Kirby was telling the truth. But, you know, China has had at least three and now uh, we believe four signals intelligence facilities in Cuba for quite some time. They took over a portion of Lourdes, which was the big spy base of the Soviet Union during the Cold War. And they are also at uh, Call, and Santiago de Cuba. There are reports that there's a fourth one, and I don't know where that is. The administration then said, well, you know, there's been a spy base in Cuba, a Chinese spy base since 2019. Well, I'm sorry, you know, there were at least three, now maybe four. And reporting suggests that those bases were there for either all or most of this century. So the administration was covering for China. Which gives you a real indication why I'm concerned, because we now got a president who is more interested in protecting the Communist Party than he is in defending the United States. And by the way, we can see that with his attempt to prevent us from learning about the origins of COVID-19. So what really is alarming, though, about China's presence in Cuba is if they actually establish a military base there, which they're and the Wall Street Journal said that they are trying to establish a training facility Because that training facility will undoubtedly host surface to air missiles, which means flying over the southern portion of the United States could become very dangerous. They probably will put anti ship cruise missiles in Cuba, maybe even short or intermediate range ballistic missiles there. So, this could be the Cuban Missile Crisis round two. So, yeah, we got to be concerned.
1: Right. And it's not clear if China's uh, leaders will be more responsible than Russia's leaders were in, in 1962.
0: Well, we know from the archives that Khrushchev was not willing to use his nuclear weapons. We don't know that about Xi Jinping.
1: Right. All right. That does it for us. If you would like to buy Gordon Chang's book or if you would like to follow him on Twitter, look at the episode description and you will find links to both of them. If you would like to advertise on this program, please email me directly or contact me on Facebook or Twitter. I hope you enjoy the episode and have a great day or a great night, depending on when you're listening to this podcast.